Hey guys, welcome back on the macro trading floor. This is Alfonso Peccatiello, aka MacroAlf, CEO and founder of the Macro Compass. And this is Andreas Steno speaking, CEO and founder of Steno Research. You are now listening to the most actionable podcast in the world of macro, uh, and we intend on providing an actionable idea towards the end of each of these episodes. But before we get to the actionable content, let's try and have a look at what happened in the world of macro this week. And um, we once again had some pretty interesting action out of global central banks, this time in particular in Japan. So Alfonso, Bank of Japan decided to widen the trading range for the 10-year JGB. Is that a surprise or was it something that was on the cards all the, all the way through the, uh, the autumn year? So uh, let me say, Andres, I would have expected them to do that maybe in Q1 next year. And the reason is pretty simple. That's very little to do with inflation and a lot to do with the incentive schemes. Kuroda's terms is ending in April next year. So obviously he wants to have a victory lap before he, he goes away and say, look, I drove Japan out of this disinflationary spiral. It has nothing to do with the Bank of Japan actions, but of course, policymakers are going to claim victory. And I'm going to start raising rates or, sorry, being more hawkish than I was over the last 10 years, setting the stage for my successor. He did it a bit earlier, to be honest, than expected. And the market took them relatively seriously, if you ask me, Andreas. And uh, looking a bit into the, um, the volatility adjusted dashboard that I use here, um, if I look at Japan and the moves over the last week, you know, you see some pretty um, strong repricing of what the Japanese deposit rates are going to be over the next years. Because don't forget, Andreas, they didn't raise rates, front-end deposit rates, uh, policy rates. They weren't raised, but they just widened the band of 10 years. So it's not automatic that front-end rates were repriced as in the Bank of Japan is going to hike. And that's what is happening. There are 50 basis points of hikes priced now over the next two years in Japan. And the other interesting component I saw is that bond volatility is getting repriced very aggressively. Uh, so option volatility, especially in the short tenors, two-year, five-year, it's now getting repriced meaningfully on the way up. So in, bond investors are expecting some fireworks to come. This is not a one-off uh, move as being read by markets. Uh, to me, that may be a bit of an overdone reaction. Um, and let me explain why. Uh, if you read what Bank of Japan actually writes about this decision to widen the trading range of the 10-year bond yield, um, they use financial stability and functioning of the JGB market as the excuse to do so. Um, they don't uh, refer to inflation at all um, in the decision-making. Uh, and to, to take a few very um, practical examples of why the functioning in the JGB market was sort of out of sync. Um, take a look at the implied pricing of eight and nine year JGBs um, pre this decision. Uh, they, um, they traded with an implied interest rate above the 25 basis points cap of 10 year bonds. Um, and I guess uh, from right about every uh, corner of this market, uh, Bank of Japan were told that the 10-year point was basically as illiquid as possible. Uh, and as a consequence, they had to lift the 10-year point to ensure that it traded above the, um, the part of the curve just in front of the 10-year. Is that a signal that they intend on doing something in the front end? Well, not really. Um, but 
the question is obviously whether the successor to Corona could be interested in doing something in the front end. Um, the big if in that discussion is whether the inflation picture will actually warrant um, that kind of decision making in six to nine months from now. And I, I have my doubts about that um, because if the global inflation picture starts sort of fading during the next three quarters, which I think is a fairly feasible scenario, uh, then we should remember that Bank of Japan uh, is currently only one percentage point from target, something like that. Uh, so they don't have a lot of, of ground to cover in that sense. Yeah, analyst expectation for core inflation in Japan next year is 2%, which is the first time in a while where people are expecting inflation to be at 2%. Inflation swaps are a bit more hesitant. It's roughly 1.5% being priced in. But the story is really more about incentive schemes here. I mean, if, if uh, Kuroda's successor, now that Abe is unfortunately not with us anymore, and Kuroda is out of the picture too, perhaps one might speculate that you know Japan is going to go another way trying to set monetary policy. It's all speculation, this was just the first step, but also looking at the volatility in dollar yen or euro yen, that was pretty something, right? Again, it goes to show that if you look at the yen, ultimately, it you know in a, in a global recession, being Japan an exporter of capital, you would expect Japanese investors to export less capital abroad than they would when the economy is growing, which means the yen gets a lift in any case when the economy is slowing down. That's been always the case. And also yield differentials, generally speaking, in a recession tend to compress because Japanese yields just don't move, but foreign yields also come down as foreign central banks are cutting rates. That's how it goes normally. That's why in a slowdown, uh, the yen gets a bit. In principle, one would argue that especially... If the Bank of Japan is rewarding Japanese cash more, uh, or is supposed to, then this might get an additional boost. But actually, there is a nuance, I think, because if it's true that in a recession, Japanese investors won't buy Italian bonds or European equities or etc., I might want to argue that they might want to buy more uh, dollar bonds than before during a recession, as the Federal Reserve will be cutting rates. Yeah, and let, let's let's try and and sort of look at the picture from a Japanese perspective when it comes to global rates, right? What you want to see as a global investor in dollar bonds is a steep dollar curve. Because what you do is that you buy the far end, for example, the 10-year bond, and then you FX hedge it, uh, which is a cost that is derived from a short-term spread in um dollar versus yen rates, for example. So if you have a steep dollar curve, it's very attractive to buy a dollar bond and FX hedge it in Japan. What you have now is the exact opposite, an extreme inversion, making it almost impossible to, to um, make the equation look nice of buying a 10-year bond in the US FX hedged. Uh, you have almost a 5% annualized headwind uh, in the FX cost. Um, if you buy a 10-year in the US. So obviously, it's not it's not a good thing um, to, to do so on an FX hedge basis right now. So what you need to see to get the Japanese back in the dollar market is a re-steepening of the curve. And I actually think that we could get that next year. Yeah, especially if the Fed, uh, you know, folds over and decides that they've done enough damage at some point in 2023 and they start, you know, e either outright cutting rates or signaling to the market that they will. Now, the yeah. other... Go ahead. One, th one, one thing I wanted to add is that should Bank of Japan panic, let me put it like that, and actually try to bring up the front end in the Japanese curve, then you will get 
a flattening, potentially even an inversion of the GDP curve, mm-hmm. which would make uh, U.S. bonds on an FX hedge basis look relative attractive. That's correct. So the the automatic thing of thinking that if Japan raises rates, it's terrible for global bond markets. Well, it's de- it definitely less attractive for a Japanese investor to buy risky assets or credit spreads or uh, equities, etc., but not necessarily to buy U.S. treasuries. Now, the other central bank, Andreas, which was basically dormant for 10 years and now all of a sudden wakes up and decides that we need terminal rates at 4 4.5%, is the European Central Bank. We are still seeing the reverberation of Lagarde's pretty iconic uh, press conference, if you ask me. She was as awkish as somebody can ever sound. I found that impressive, Andreas. I still don't think European bond markets in the front end have fully appreciated what she said. To me, it sounded like the following. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we have core inflation in our forecast at 4.2% in 2023. I don't think that forecast is going to be right, but that's what they're basing their policy on, Andreas. 4.2% core inflation. And we are a central bank, and uh, as everybody else, we're going to raise nominal ECB deposit rates, at least to that level, to have a tight policy. So that's 4, 4.5% terminal rate in the very front end. That requires quite a dramatic shift of where the shots is trading, where front end swaps are trading, but even where boons are trading. And also, they're going to do QT on top of that. And people say it's a small pace, but they're already preparing to do 30 billion in Q2 and TLT row repayments are coming, which are going to drain bank reserves pretty aggressively. Honestly, I think the European bond market is you know, ripe for quite some action in Q1 next year. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely spot on, and they will have an excuse for probably another one to two quarters uh, as a consequence of the European inflation picture lagging what we see in the US by in between five and six months. Historically speaking, it's actually a pretty decent correlation um, when you test it over a couple of cycles. So it's not just now, it, it, it's it's what has happened over the past 20 years. Uh, and. Therefore, as per usual, the European Central Bank is uh, one of the central banks being uh, late to the game. Uh, and I don't think it's ruled out that they, they panic through Q1 and they continue to sound as hawkish as they do, even as the uh, confirmation that we roll into a recession actually gets stronger and stronger. I mean, it's so funny, Andreas, like European core inflation has lagged the US by four to six months throughout this cycle for good reasons. I mean, the fiscal stimulus in Europe is more phased um, than what it was in the US. In the US, it was one-off payments all concentrated between Q2 2020 and Q, Q1 2021. In Europe, we have this sure uh, European Union kind of programs where the fiscal endouts are actually done in 2023, in 2024. So it takes a little bit longer for um, the fiscal stimulus to feed into the economy. And also this labor market is much more sticky in Europe. You know, these wages aren't going up so flexibly like they are in the US. So basically, we are looking at very late kind of inflationary pickup reactions, and the European Central Bank is going to set policy on that, despite forward-leading indicators are pretty, pretty clear, I think, at this point, that the situation isn't the most rosy. I don't think I, I don't know how Europe is going to handle that, but my, my lungs are not going to be in, um, in Europe anytime soon. Forget about a soft landing. <laughs> I mean, uh, especially given how central banks react to this. And I uh, deliberately say react. Okay, can I can I ask you something? You've done quite some work on um, on energy, and there has been some news on European price cap on natural gas. May I ask your take on that? Well, 
the short story is that the price cap will be implemented if the TTF front end contract in the uh, Dutch natural gas um, contract trades above 180 euros per megawatt hour for a trading week. And the second uh, thing that uh, is needed is a, a price of TTF natural gas that is at least 35 euros above um, a weighted average of two liquid natural gas benchmarks. Uh, so the price cap would have been triggered uh, in August, September this year if it had been in place. Um, to me, that would have been a catastrophe. Um, so let's hope that the price cap will not be triggered next year. Obviously, we are uh, quite far away from price cap territory right now with the front-end TTF contract trading at 95 uh, or thereabout right now. Um, the issue is that We currently work with almost full storages as a consequence of the price action that happened three, four months ago. Uh, so the big litmus test of this price cap is when we need to fill storages again in 23. Um, I mean, the short take is that this is 100% virtual signaling, um, in, in particular from Southern European politicians trying to send a signal that we have, we have capped your end um price as a consumer um by the end of the day if this price cap is actually triggered um it means that you cannot bid in the ttf futures curve for 20 days following the trigger of the uh which essentially means that you annul the market um i don't think that's feasible so um it, it's a liquidity issue it is a potential supply issue And I say a potential supply issue, it's mainly a liquidity issue. Uh, you allow the spot market to function, uh, but the future market will be basically be annulled in such a scenario. Uh, and ultimately, they have um, created a lot of loopholes to get out of this deal if uh, we um, get into supply scarcity issues as a consequence of it. Uh, so should we get a trigger of this cap next year, I actually think they will end up annulling it. Very interesting, Andreas. Let's actually call in the guest of the week, which is quite an expert on energy, but in ma on macro in general, I think he's strong all this energy, but it's going to be interesting to hear what trade and um, macro thesis he comes up with. It is now time to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. And uh, this week, I'm happy to say that we've invited a friend of mine, but also a future a cooperation partner, let me put it like that. Uh, I'll leave that cliffhanger for later, but uh, Warren Pye is the founder of 314 Research. It's a pleasure to host you at the macro trading floor. Very happy to be here. Uh, love this podcast, so excited to be talking to you all. Pleasure to have you here. As I always quote you as one of the most underrated people on Twitter, as in you do excellent work and your follower account should be a multiple of what it is, in my opinion. Um, it's a pleasure to interview you so you can showcase on the macro trading floor uh, the skills I'm talking about. Now, um, the first question I have, as always, is very broad, which is you do quite some work on um, identifying at what point in the macro cycle do we sit um, in the US in particular, but also in Europe. Can you start from there? Yeah, absolutely. So well, this is kind of an exercise we went through in preparation for our 2023 outlook. Because when we kind of step back and thought through 23 and you read through, it's natural to read other outlooks. You can kind of see three big consensus issues that are, are kind of forming out there. And then timing those, I think, is more important than anything. The first is a Fed pause. The second is a potential recession. And the third is earnings. When do they decline and how much? So those are the three big uh things we're trying to place out on our, our kind of cycle composite when we started our outlook. Now, 
given those three events and we're trying to place them, how do you center yourself? The first thing you want to do is look to history and determine when would the Fed pause from their current hike cycle? And so that was our first question. And looking back at history, really the most con conclusive uh, signal for us that's, that a Fed pause is at hand is when the Fed funds rate inverts with the two-year yield. So that means the two-year yield is trading below the Fed funds rate upper bound. And that has been a hallmark of every Fed pause going back into the 1970s that we followed. And after the last meeting, last Fed meeting here a few days ago, the this inversion has happened. So history tells us that we should expect a pause from the Fed right now. And now this is just what history says, not what we're saying, just to walk you through that really quickly. So the average pause going back over about 50 years, Fed pause after a hike cycle is about seven months. So if we paused right now, you would then expect the Fed to be on pause into uh, call it middle of the year, call it July of 2023. And if the cycle played out as previous cycles had, you would expect to see uh, the Fed begin cutting rates at that point in time. And then you would have a recession begin somewhere in the very end of uh, 23, maybe call it November. Um, equities would bottom at the very end, maybe beginning of 24, and earnings would bottom somewhere around May of 24. This is all a historic composite that you would put together from all of history and the cycles we've seen, obviously some of the things are going to deviate from that. And so that's how, that was our jumping off point. And that's where we're at in the cycle. We've had a uh, huge week in global central banking once again with Bank of Japan um, uh, making a surprise move, um, widening the trade range for the 10-year bond yield in Japan from 25 basis points to plus 50 basis points. Is that something that's on your radar when you assess the Federal Reserve outlook into the first quarter of next year? Yeah, it's absolutely on our radar. Everything you have to consider everything. Uh, the big trade we've been recommending to clients is that we we just see so many regimes uh, kind of coalescing for a positive year for fixed income next year, and something it's becoming consensus, which you always feel a little bit nervous when you're you're sitting and hanging out with the consensus. But let's just review a few things. Um, after CPI peaks, bonds have always produced a positive return in the next year. When earnings decelerate you also see bond returns supercharged when the CPI on a year-over-year -year basis begins decelerating, which we clearly peaked June of this year, you also get a positive return from bonds. So those three things align from a regime standpoint. Then when you say when earnings typically flatline, which we believe they will next year, so that means year-over-year -year growth in earnings goes to zero, bonds average return in the year following about 12.5% total return. And we're looking at the long bond on that. Um, finally, when these Fed funds rate two-year inversions take place, you see a 100 basis point fall on average in the two-year yield the next year. You get a bull steepener, which you get a 50 basis point decrease in the 10-year, so you end up with a bull steepener of the yield curve. When you add all this together, in, in our view, conviction is that CPI has peaked and is going to rapidly decelerate next year. It's hard not to like fixed income. You add the, the, you know, the Bank of Japan making the move they made, obviously a little bit of a tremor through the fixed income market. I think the theory is that now you're getting a little higher yield out of Japanese debt, and that's going to create some kind of competition for treasuries. But still, there's a huge gulf between the yields you're getting here and there. 
I just don't see it as a material impact on the trade at this point. It's not something that um, I haven't changed my view based off of it. Maybe if anything, you get a better entry point here in the next few weeks because of it. Warren, I'm uh, thinking through with you when it comes to the historical sequence that you highlighted before, right? The pause that historically would be at around seven months long and followed by rate cuts. Um, as you walk into a recession, the Federal Reserve has on average cut three to 400 basis points uh, in the 12, 24 months after a recession starts. So I need to ask you this, um, is this time different? And let me elaborate a second on the question, which is Powell seems very committed in being as late as he can and making really sure that inflation has peaked before he really changes his stance. It's a bit like not wanting to make again um, another mistake of underestimating inflation. So how do you put the historical composite that you discussed um, in context, given what Powell has told us this year? Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, what we, I believe that Powell is going to continue hiking for a bit. I think the pause, ultimate pause comes in Q1. Let's say they pause in March. Uh, but this is all a little bit up in the air. Number one, what it tells me, just to answer your question directly, is the Fed's behind the curve. So this takes the soft landing scenario really off the table. And I, we've been holding out hope for a soft landing. I think if you look at checkable deposits and excess savings coming out of the pandemic and the stimulus, the, the economy has been underestimated at every turn. So we've been giving it every opportunity to, to widen that path into a soft landing. Even a couple months ago, we were saying, okay, there's a higher probability of a soft landing. The market kind of has priced that in, but I think the path to a soft landing is gone. The Fed is behind the curve. If Powell does what we think he's going to do, you can just forget about a soft landing in our view. Um, and so, yeah, that's the, um, we think the Fed pauses in Q1. Uh, if you look at just to give you a little more on the soft landing, if you look at the 9495 case, for instance, that's the last soft landing that uh, the Fed was able to engineer, and they're very rare. Uh, the Fed, again, going back to this Fed funds rate two-year inversion, the Fed paused when the two-year was more than 100 basis points above the funds rate at that point. So they paused well, they were ahead of the curve on that soft landing. And then once the inversion took place, the Fed began cutting rates. So again, they were ahead of the curve. Usually they start, they pause when this inversion takes place. This time they were cutting rates. So it's really important to say, okay, in 95, the soft landing case that we can go back to and look at, the Fed uh, was ahead of the curve. And now we're on the verge of a policy error where the Fed, because they don't want to, they, they started the cycle off wrong. They were too loose for too long. And now they're going to remain too tight into this. It really changes the game when it comes to the potential for a soft landing. Uh, so yeah, I, that's where I, that's where I see the pause taking place. And the big implication is the Fed's behind the curve. The pause will probably be a little shorter than that seven month average in my view. And I think there's, Again, a big segment of the market that thinks they're taking the Fed at face value here and they think the Fed's really just going to hang out at like 5% next year. Um, I don't think the economy looks like it can handle that right now. I think you're going to be at this place where, uh, you know, the, the, the deterioration is clear. The CPI data has rolled over really rapidly. The only thing holding the CPI up at that point in the middle of next year is going to be this stale shelter inflation, which everyone will know is stale and doesn't reflect what's happening on the ground in the U.S. housing market. So I, I don't see the Fed sticking at 5% the rest of uh, next year. It's a political animal, ultimately, 
It was political. Uh, it's the, the shift from inflation concerns to recession concerns is going to be really quick next year. And the Fed will respond to that, in my view. If we look at financial markets across assets and try to assess each asset class relative to the probability of a recession next year, I wanted to get your take on the current curvature of the dollar curve in historical context as sort of a bellwether of that particular recession next year. The inversion further out the curve, not uh, between the Fed funds and the two-year, um, is almost at extremes, right? Uh, if we look at the spread between two and tens, um, we are at an inversion point that we haven't seen for more than three decades. Uh, so is this a signal to you that the recession in 2023 will be deeper than average? I, I don't think it will be deeper than average. I think it will, but, but, you know, it's a more or less has a perfect track record. Again, the, these yield curve inversions work with a massive lag. And so 20 months is about the average lag from uh, initial inversion of the twos tens to the beginning of a recession. And that again, puts us in a, a fall recession, which is kind of our base case here is that we think that the U.S. economy enters a recession somewhere in the second half of 2023, a little earlier than we had, than maybe that cycle composite had predicted. That means we get equity weakness out through the, uh, you know, call it Q3, Q4, especially of this uh, coming year and earnings bottom somewhere at the very end of the year, maybe the beginning of next year. And that's how our cycle would deviate specifically from the, the average cycle that we laid out at the beginning of the program. And yeah, the, the yield curves inverted everything, every, all those yield curves, every single one, whatever Powell's brought out, he's, he's, he changed the goalpost a number of times and, you know, they're all inverted at this point. I think the message is clear that the economy is, is rolling over. Again, we looked at little economic aggregate economic index of just consumption and incomes and industrial production heading into that 94 soft landing. I mean, we were at kind of double the growth rates that we are right now. And that's mostly hard data. There's been this divergence between hard and soft data that a lot of people are talking about. That was in 94, 95 when the Fed was ahead of the curve. We're deteriorating rapidly on those measures at this point in time and the Fed's behind the curve. So yeah, I think the yield curve is telling us we're gonna have a recession. The saving grace on why I say it's not gonna be deep though is just we have so much liquidity that's still in the system from the amount of fiscal stimulus that took place in the, the year following the pandemic. And that excess savings, it's just a huge buffer. Balance sheets for consumers, balance sheets for corporations are strong. Uh, and again, it's the reflexivity thing I've talked about in our notes is that how could you have a, a, is it possible to have a really deep recession when everybody's expecting it and preparing for it? So I don't see it being deep. I think we look more like a, the max drawdown on these years that we're predicting is somewhere around 17 to 20%. Uh, that puts us at, I think, ultimate lows around 3,300 next year. And uh, that would be in the second half of 23. And that ultimately, I think that gets us discounted enough to the earnings outlook, which we have, which we haven't talked about yet, to set the absolute bottom for this uh, cycle. Warren, uh, I like this analogy and moving the goalpost with uh, Powell. I mean, it looked to me in 2022 at every press conference, it would come out with a new yield curve measure that he preferred, just basically cherry picking the one that hasn't inverted yet. 
first it was two stands no two stands don't matter it's five thirties no it's three months 18 months against three months whatever it is as long as it's not inverted i'm gonna mention that now clearly there was cherry picking but now everything is inverted so it can't um you know defend that thesis anymore um we talked about earnings drawdowns and a recession and your average um, expectation is to be later than um, the many people expect it to be next year. I actually went back and checked what commodities did as we entered recessions. And it might be a surprise to many, but not necessarily um, cyclical industrial commodities, let's say, immediately take a bath as we are entering a recession. Actually to the opposite in the first few quarters as we walk into it. So I know you have a certain interesting thesis when it comes to putting energy into this equation. Can you please help our audience understand what that thesis is? Yeah, great point, Alf. And that's something that I was going to bring up is there's an assumption in that is kind of a naive assumption that a recession equals uh, oil collapsing immediately, oil demand falling off immediately. But they don't call it late cycle for no reason. You know, oil and energy are late cycle plays and these, and we are in the later stages of a cycle. And so if we think of the recession starting in the second half of 2023, which is our call, uh, then you still have this, we're still in this late cycle period where energy should, uh, be relative outperformers. Oil doesn't peak. Energy's relative, energy relative to S&P generally outperforms, like you said, for a while into uh, the recession start date. You got to throw COVID out when you're doing that stuff because it was a totally different one. But if you take COVID out, the, the typical pattern is for energy to continue higher. And also, I would go one step further. Most recessions, it's not that oil causes these recessions, but it pushes the economy off a cliff in this late cycle uh, playbook. So if you go back to 2007, 2008, the, the recession started at the end of 2007, oil spikes to $150 a barrel, essentially in July of 2008. Similarly, in that 1990, 1991 period, when we had the Gulf War and oil spikes that pushes the economy into a recession. And we saw a similar outperformance of oil going back into that 2000 period, because it would come from such a low base. So oil moving up is a classic late cycle. It doesn't, it, it, oil is not a discounting asset. It's, it's a, the shortest duration asset you can find on the menu because it's only, it only cares about the present. Oil doesn't discount future events. It is a physical commodity that trades off of to supply and demand right now. And so to me, we aren't at the place you can't anticipate a recession through oil prices. And so, and the other factor is we have a shot in the arm in demand if China reopening. I do think that you're going to see China demand increase from year over year basis. We had a crazy, unprecedented decrease year over year demand out of China because of their zero COVID policy. That unwinds. We're in late cycle. I think oil goes back to triple digits next year at some point. I would expect this in the first half of next year. And I continue to think that energy is going to be a leader in the market. Uh, you know, the fact that energy's held up, our analysis shows when you get these divergences between oil and energy, actually a resolution of the divergence comes from oil coming back to energy and, uh, and energy continuing on in a bull market. So I think this is giving us, again, a good entry point. And the final point I'd make as far as portfolio construction, just to give you a little peek into the trade we're going to recommend, portfolios have benefited from energy this last year. I think we're in a new kind of uh, regime where if you go back, energy was the energy sector 
was negatively correlated to every other sector in the market and to fixed income. We've never seen going all the way back as far as the data goes, we've never seen one sector with a negative correlation to every other sector and fixed income. Energy is hedging a lot of your risks out there. That's the bottom line. If, if, if oil were to go back, if energy, generally speaking, were to spike again next year because of geopolitical risks or some other thing we're not seeing, this is going to be, this could upset the entire fixed income trade. It would raise discount rates. It would hurt equity prices. It would hurt the consumer. So having an overweight to energy from just a portfolio construction standpoint is take away whatever your bullish or, or bearish thoughts are on the fundamentals. Just from the quantitative portfolio angle, I think you need to be overweight energy. And that's part of why it's held up so well. I think portfolio managers are starting to realize this is, I can't be underweight this, this sector right now. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. Higher inflation next year as a consequence of oil prices. That's at least what I hear, but um, you're clearly in the description the inflation camp as well, Warren. So walk us through why a spike in oil prices would not necessarily lead to a new inflationary wave during the first half of next year. Yeah. So one thing, uh, just to give you a few comments on the inflation debate, which, uh, you know, I listen to this program and I see a lot of uh, really smart people who I respect and friends with some of them come in and they recommend or they, they prognosticate and predict that Inflation is going to be high for many years out into the future. And I think this is a tough time because there are so many narratives that are seductive out there to listen to. And the narratives are things like deglobalization and energy transitions and, uh, you know, government spending and debts and deficits and work from home. You could come up with so many different stories and the conclusions come to we're at a, we're in a new regime. Inflation is going to be higher permanently. What I'd say is we're much more in the data as a firm and, and we are sympathetic to a lot of those narratives and the stories, but those aren't the things that have driven the inflation that we've experienced over the last 24 months. It's just as a, I think it's almost as a fact, not the drivers of inflation that we've seen. And so I believe you need to make your inflation predictions are much more bottoms up at this stage and to avoid being sucked into those kinds of stories ultimately. And uh, when I say that, I mean, 
you can only really forecast inflation and no one really can do it perfectly because there's so many unexpected things, but you can only really see inflation about 12 months out. Beyond that, I think it becomes extremely foggy to predict inflation beyond anything of greater length than 12 months. So if we think about, um, if we think about just from a bottoms up perspective, base effects that we're going against next year and things like that, uh, energy oil prices would have to spike back up to, you know, say $150 coming into spring in order just to make us flat on energy prices. So even if we go to a hundred bucks in the spring, that's still something like a 33% discount from what we saw last year at that time. So is, as it translates into inflation and CPI, it's still a deflationary pull on CPI. Uh, the other factor last year, when we think about it, and again, you have to just be very much in the data and understand what drove inflation last year is that we saw a spike in refining margins. So refining margins were at a near record. So the numbers that were actually baked into the CPI and what consumers were experiencing was like $220 a barrel of oil. When you think about like what was middle of distillate trading at, for instance, uh, per barrel back last year. The, the idea that we're going to have a spike in oil back to 150 and crack spreads be that strong and everything else, it's not going to happen. So the, the die is cast. Even if we get triple digit oil, we're going to have deflationary energy component of the CPI. And it's going to not just be a little bit deflationary. It's going to be a massive pull lower on that index. So um, that's really the big, our big takeaway is that you need to be bottoms up in your CPI forecasts that even the, the base effects of last year make it almost impossible for energy to be a positive inflationary contributor. Now, if we somehow got it, that would mean that we something crazy happened in the world and having that energy in your back pocket in your portfolio, you're going to be very thankful that you have it. But I, that's not base case. And you don't need that to be successful with the group. Now, very uh, interesting, Warren, because you basically are picturing here an environment where the U.S. economy does slow down and it's a disinflationary environment where nominal growth comes down. But you're also telling us that in principle, energy can serve well in that environment, which might be a bit counterintuitive for many. And also you're saying that despite energy, oil prices in this case might go up again. That doesn't necessarily mean that the energy component of the CPI might be pushed up. So now it's time to ask you, how do you trade all of this? Absolutely. I put the um, money to work at some point and, uh, that's what I love about the show. So our big view, as I said, we think there are multiple regimes coming together for fixed income. So that's our base level. We have the most conviction around that. Inflation's falling. Fixed income's going to benefit. No matter what the Fed says, that rhetoric's going to change. It's it's talk is cheap. So I think the, the two-year has the most uh, potential right here. It's got the highest yield, obviously, the inverted yield curve. I think with, to spice it up a little bit, we would make the trade to pair that fixed income exposure with long equi energy equity exposure. I, I, you know, again, going back to what could really disrupt that fixed income trade, it's a reignition of the, of the oil spike, the energy spike that we saw this year and going into next year. And so I think you want to pair those things together. Uh, again, we ran, we did an entire report on what we're calling the bimodal distribution of energy and the correlations of energy to every other sector out in every other asset out in the menu. 
And every, no matter what, even if you just assume normal returns for energy, you should be boosting your energy weight in your portfolios. Even if you're just assuming historic returns, nothing outside of the ordinary, all due to portfolio construction and correlations. And so you want to pair your energy and fixed income together. I think that makes a lot of sense as the trade uh, going into 2023. That is a really interesting basket, Warren. Final question that relates to your macro outlook and the trade. And we always ask our guests um, about that. What could go wrong with this basket of a two-year and an energy exposure, which is a tricky one? Yeah. Well, number one, I'm not specifying, which is a little bit of a sleight of hand trick, but you know, I don't have to do that here, is I'm not specifying the exact weights of what I, how I would put this trade on. Obviously, the devil's in the details. They, say, they like to say God is in the sweeping gesture, but the devil's in the details. I'd say that's true here. Um, and so with that kind of out of the way, you know, I, I think the biggest, uh, in my mind, it would be fixed income being the larger weight in the portfolio. So you want to look at what could go wrong there and what, and what would happen with energy. And so let's say there's a resolution in Russia, Ukraine, number one, and a ceasefire. I think you could see some of the air come out of this energy trade, oil in, in general. Um, maybe that also helps stimulate the economy a little bit. Because as I said, excess savings in the economy is is strong and it was something we got wrong coming into 2022. We did not, we underestimated the strength of the economy. We were, I think we were pretty right about our predictions, but that was one we got wrong. So we could be underestimating the strength of the economy again. And if that, those two things come together, maybe the Fed feels actually comfortable hanging out at a higher for longer. And the two year, in fact, is wrong this time around. And so I'd say that's one thing, that's one way I could, uh, construct a, a reasonable scenario where our trade would, would go wrong. Warren, um, what I personally appreciate about you is that you're very open-minded when it comes to being uh, long or short any asset. You're not married to a particular narrative. You just do your data-driven analysis and you know, try to position as best as possible. This is one of the most difficult traits to have as a strategist and as an investor. So I actually envy that feature of yours. The reason why I'm saying that is if people um, would like to find more about what you do at your firm with your colleagues, can you please tell them where they can find more about Warren. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the firm is 314research.com. It's the number three, the word 14research.com. You can find us on our, our website, uh, submit the form. And generally we're an institutional research provider. So, you know, that's who we serve. Uh, the, uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Warren Pies and then 314 Twitter handle as well. So, you know, we're pretty active on social media. And like you said, maybe we're underrated <laughs> for the, uh, for the content we put out. So, um, that's the uh, that's the best way to get in touch with us. But we have other angles coming, right, Andreas? We have. But one thing I wanted to add is that uh, even if it doesn't feel like it, I know that a lot of large institutions are present on Twitter just uh, via anonymous accounts, right? They're, yes. they're, they're not visible there, but um, they're certainly sneak peeking from time to time uh, in Twitter feeds as well. But Warren, um, a lot of people listening to this podcast will know about the cable. Uh, that's obviously referring to the pound sterling versus the US dollar. But the two of us are going to invent the energy cable. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, by the first week of January, um, we will launch the first Substack with 
both the European and the US energy perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I don't even know of any other Substack with two authors uh, with two different angles on on the topic. So, I mean, it's it's a huge it's a huge innovation there. It's something I've been I've been asked to do more retail and more accessible research for years, especially when it comes to energy. And I just I thought this was a great fit and an opportunity to, to kind of introduce ourselves to the uh, the market. And what's the one thing we learned this year is that these what were bifurcated and separated energy markets globally are now integrating by by uh, virtue of uh, a necessity that in the Russia Ukraine conflict. So Europe is much more reliant and integrated with the United States and vice versa than it's ever been. And so you you need to really attack this topic from both ends, from US and Europe. Yeah, I perfectly agree, Rowan. So um, stay tuned for the launch of the Energy Cable by early January next year. Warren Pies, always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I um, I have to admit already now that I like your your little cocktail of a trait. <laughs> all right, all right, good, good. I was waiting for you guys to just bash it behind my back, but uh, uh, don't worry. Don't let's worry. see five minutes. There's a post segment section. We're gonna take care of that. Warren, a pleasure to have you here. It's good to see you guys. Thank you for having me. Andreas, I cannot believe it's Christmas and we're releasing a podcast talking about trade ideas. I mean, geez, we're complete junk market junkies here. But okay, our guest of the week was Warren Pies, um, and he came out with um, actually a portfolio construction um, idea rather than a trade idea in itself, because he wants to be long two-year treasuries and long oil on top of it, or long energy in general on top of it, which is pretty interesting. So in ETF space, you would do that by buying um, XLE or USO or one of these ETFs that gives you exposure to, exposure to energy and then buying a short-term ETF um, for treasuries. So that would be, I don't know, SHY, for example. Now, that's an interesting set of, of uh, longs to have. So I want to get your take on that first. Well, I, um, I like the idea. Um, the issue uh, that I have with the idea is that it seems as if the energy equity trade is extremely sensitive to a disinflationary CPI environment. Um, not least if you look at it on a very long term time horizon scale. I've done a study on uh, so beta sensitivities to a rollover in the CPI across equity sectors. Uh, and you actually get a, a beta of 10 in the equity sector to a 1% percentage points drop in the CPI. Uh, so let's assume that the CPI drops three percentage points from here, four percentage points. That would, historically speaking, mean a drawdown of 30 to 40% in the equity se energy equity sector. I don't think we will get that big a drawdown, but I'm probably in the camp of a continued drawdown in this sector as a consequence. Um, but what I like about it is that uh, you get exposure to a relatively cheap hedge against your base case. You get exposure to an equity sector uh, that no one dares to touch in the good old institutional space. Uh, I can guarantee you that if you are a client of a European pension fund, uh, they're currently being told by regulators, their clients, their board to stay away from investing in this particular sector as a consequence of ESG policies. And I think that's one of the reasons why you can 
trade this sector with a very low uh, PE, even in a scenario where it's fairly visible to write about everyone that we have a scarcity of the of this particular yeah. good right uh so it is an interesting long-term setup um and i mean from from a technical perspective from a timing perspective i guess the sector is down almost 10 percent over the past month so you could get a worse entry uh probably um but again from a technical perspective i don't buy the energy story on a standalone basis i actually lean in the other direction in a spread spread trade versus industrials uh so to me the price of energy is still too high relative to the demand outlook mm -hmm. uh, but i like it from a more structural perspective and i guess that from a portfolio put um, construction perspective it makes sense to add long bonds relative to this trade at least if you like it long term yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting combination. I think I'm gonna have uh, definitely both of them in my uh, portfolio to start in 2023, especially front end bonds. I think they look now like more decent risk reward trade. Like how much you can lose against how much you can make seems relatively convex in a positive way in terms of returns. Um, the oil thing on top of it or the energy thing is pretty interesting because at the end of the day, what Warren was pointing out as his best preferred case to make money out of this combination is that energy actually rebounds next year on anything that is geopolitical risks or um, supply you know, constrictions in general. But this doesn't pass through the inflation story that much when it comes to the CPI basket impact of that energy price going up, which means also if the economy is weakening and we get some losses in the job market and some earnings drawdown, if oil is rallying, Andreas, I don't think the, the, the Federal Reserve in that macro environment is going to scream, okay, because oil is rallying, we need to reprice the terminal rate higher, which means, you know, you can actually get potentially positive returns from the, the energy part. And at the same time, you can get, I'm not going to say positive returns on the bond side, but at least a good carry, good coupons in it. So it, they could work together. That's his point, right? And if they don't work together, one of the two legs might provide you with decent diversification benefits in the portfolio. So I'm not against um, the thesis behind this, let's say. No, the weightings the weightings in a portfolio are the most complicated stuff. But of course, you're not going to have a portfolio only with two assets. You're going to have it maybe with seven or eight, which means you need to look at uh, you know correlation metrics against other assets as well. I think overall, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I, I tend to agree, but if we look at equity sectors this year, um, it's obviously one of the very few sectors actually performing. Uh, yeah. As far as I can see, energy is up roughly 55% a year to date, depending a bit on, on um, whether you measure it in, in, on a European scale or a, a US scale. But in any case, um, it is one of the very few sectors performing in an environment where cash flows are king again. Um, yep. You have a high implied earnings yield here, which is not too bad um, in, in a scenario like the current. And even if um, we get downside surprises to, to earnings next year, uh, I don't really see that sector struggling the most on a relative basis. Um, if we look towards the other end of the spectrum, we also had a, a complete um, uh, if not meltdown, then at least something close to in Tesla this week, uh, which yeah. spills over to the broader consumer discretionary basket. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I said earlier this year, uh, the way to, to, to trade equities in 
a cost of living crisis is to belong everything at the very bottom of uh, Maslow's hierarchy and be short things above that in the hierarchy. And that's been a spot on trade, right? Consumer discretionary is right at the bottom and you have consumer stables basically stable uh, throughout the year, uh, roughly a 0% return before inflation. Um, so I, I guess I kind of stick to that view if you look at equities on, um, in sort of a broader macro setting, that it makes sense to be long stuff that people really need. Also, when you look at the returns uh, across equity sectors this week on a rolling basis, you'll find that most of the standard deviation negative returns happened in um, consumer discretionary, real estate, semiconductors, anything that is in general very high beta to economic growth, let's say, um, or interest rates. I mean, one of the two. And um, I find that very interesting because if you look at the returns of equity sectors, when, when we are approaching potential recessionary periods, you always find that the stuff you need tends to perform best together with the stuff that um, delivers yields, dividend yields, earnings yields in general, um, versus stuff that is overly priced. And the idea there is either you need the stuff anyway, or central banks are going to cut rates when nominal growth uh, goes down and therefore having some safe, relatively safe assets yielding you something on a dividend yield or an earnings yield basis actually makes sense. So I don't think that thesis will be challenged much to start 2023. The other interesting point I have in 2001 in that recession, US utilities actually rallied about 15% in the first six months of 2001. We were having job losses, but as the market was repricing uh, the Fed funds path ahead, basically, they were always looking at these US utilities and US staples, US healthcare, looking at those like, okay, I'm gonna get a decent dividend yield on those. They are not sectors exposed to the cycles that much. And the Fed is cutting rates on top of that, which makes these dividend yields even more attractive. I don't think that's a bad way to look at equity sectors next year. No, uh, and I mean, one thing is safe to say, if utilities outperform on a relative basis in the equity space, it is not a sign of risk oncoming. Um, and I guess that bit, that's been shown in various research pieces as well over the years. Um, the big if for me is whether we get substantial enough cuts by the Federal Reserve towards the end of next year to sort of reignite some of the interest rate sensitive, uh, sensitive sectors. Um, but. I think we should um, probably expect more pain before we get that gain. And that's also the signal being sent by markets right now. Only thing that I want to add to that, Andreas, is that I have not extremely good feelings in entering 2023 uh, completely naked when it comes to taking equity risks. The reason is simple. There's a lot of muscle memory into investors. So at the first sign, I, I actually am pretty convinced at the first sign that inflation is really coming down, that the labor market is really cooling down. I think the first automatic muscle body reaction is going to be to buy stocks because people are like, you know, the Fed is going to pivot. And I, I, I challenged this view strongly and I did so over the last six to nine months. Um, but that's probably what people are going to do first. And in a bear market, you can have vicious rallies, you know, 15, 20% in your face. So I think that one of the smartest macro approaches here is to have some equity long exposure in your book, but choose wisely the sectors to do so. So choose the low beta stuff to, to cyclical growth, basically, but somehow try to get some equity longs in your book. That's how I would try and approach it if I had to, uh, to design a portfolio today. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and 
then look at spread trades if you want to to trade yeah. it against some of the other sectors, right? Uh, so that's exactly what I've done. Um, currently short energy versus uh, long industrials and currently short uh, tech slash discretionary versus long staples, both working. Mm -hmm. um, so they can even work in a rebound as we've seen in October, November. They've actually done yeah. so. They could, they could. So I think it's... Uh one decent way to leave uh, our audience. Before we do that, Andreas, um, just a reminder that the macro trading floor is an appetizer of what Andreas and I do on our own platforms. So mine is called the Macro Compass and it provides investment ideas, research, interactive macro tools you guys can use to look at your own trade ideas as well and screen markets and much more. It's the macrocompass.com in case you want to go and have a look. Yeah, and uh, in my case, you can go and have a look at uh, stenoresearch.com. Uh, unfortunately, for those of you watching on video, this is an actual physical sticker. Um, so it, it, it tells you that I'm better at numbers than actual physical work, I guess. <laughs> I, I turned it the wrong way around, at least from the webcam's perspective. But in any case, stenoresearch.com. You're also welcome to reach out to both of us on Twitter or, or via mail, of course. Um, we have both products um, catering for the retail audience, but also uh, like pro-to-pro -pro packages for, for institutions. Uh, and uh, I look very much forward to bringing all of this live come January um, 2023. Um, but until then, have a very great holiday season with your families out there. Thank you very much for everything uh, that you've done for us this year. The support has been immense. Uh, I don't think there is any doubt whatsoever that we are the fastest growing macro podcast on the entire planet right now. Um, and that's thanks to all of you out there. Uh, so remember to review, support, and share this podcast. Um, it helps us grow this audience, but it also helps us still providing this content for free. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen, and you are not excused from drinking cappuccino after 12 a.m., not even at Christmas or at New Year's Eve. This is Alf speaking and talk to you guys. When, Andreas, actually, are we going to release a podcast at, at New Year's Eve or are we crazy enough? I mean, what is the next one? Uh, the next one is the 1st of January. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> and and uh, as I, I think I said it last week as well, if you listen to our podcast the 1st of January, uh, then I'm happy that I didn't attend the lousy party that you were at New Year's <laughs> Eve. <laughs> but until <laughs> then, see you guys. Ciao, <laughs> yeah, guys.